and an island never cries. Thanks, Michael. He did a good job, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Got to fix the pulpit. Just a minute. Hey, um, you, you know, uh, last week, a lot of people weren't here because of the blizzard, but Eileen and Kurt and Barry and Andrew did a great job. And so you can uh, watch the message, what happened last week online. And I also encourage you to do that uh, whenever you miss a message. And I hope you know that after the service, uh, Michael usually has the message up online within a few hours. So if you know of somebody and you're thinking, gosh, this message would be good for them, it's a great way to, I don't know, hopefully bless people or, or curse them, I suppose, depending on what you think of this of the message, uh, just to forward the, the link on to them. So this morning we're continuing in our series uh, from Ephesians. It's a it's a rather um, a rather adult sermon, but I, I don't know. I keep my kids in here, Jason and, and Matt. So um, I, I'm just mentioning that so nobody gets mad at me later. So uh, let's pray. All right, Father, um, we pray that this message would be worship. Michael prayed about our conversations and the music. Lord, may every message be worship uh, to your glory and to your praise. And so come thou fount of every blessing and cause us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. That's where we left off last time, hopefully you remember. And it's what Paul has been talking about for all of Ephesians, that this is the plan for the fullness of time to anakephalio, to unite all things in him under one sacred head now wounded. And last time, each of you received a bolt or a nut when you came into the, into the service. And I said it could be that you are, number one, just a nut. Just a nut. Uh, or uh, you could be an integral part of the iron giant. If you're just a nut, you explain yourself. You give your life its own meaning. In Greek, you give your psyche its own logos. You are your own logos. You are your own psycho logos. You're just a nut. But, on the other hand, if you trust that you're part of something bigger, that something bigger gives you meaning, and, and you're not just a nut. You're an integral and unique part of the iron giant. And you know how it is. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. But Paul has been telling us, you are not just you. You are a unique and integral part of the eschatos Adam, the superman, the body. You are an integral part of the body of Christ. And, and, and that's why we built the PVC Frankenchrist, remember? Um, a, a body has one logos, one meaning. It has a nervous system. And a body also has one life. It has a, a pulmonary System. So, so we built the PVC Frankenchrist with pipes, so like the blood would flow through, through, the, through the pipes. 
And you know, a pulmonary system is interesting because scripture says that God is spirit and that means wind or breath. It's all one word in Greek and in Hebrew. It can all be one word. And the wind or the breath is all around us, and yet it does us uh, no, no good. It's inaccessible to us. It's, it's not accessible unless our pulmonary system takes the oxygen from the air and delivers it to our body as oxygenated blood through circulating blood. Scripture teaches that the life is in the blood. In, in Greek, you'd say, the psyche is in the blood. Psyche refers to the way that we think or the way that, that we live. It's also translated soul. Each of you is like a, a body part or a, a blood vessel. And so um, if you're cut off, you may look alive and, and yet you're dead. Or I should say you're like the undead dead. You got some life in you, but it's dead. It's cut off from the circulatory system. Uh, if, if you're clogged or congested, if you're a hardened artery, well, you can't give life or receive life. You, you can't bleed. The, the Greek word for hardened is porosis. It, it comes from another word, poros, which refers to like a precipitated rock, precipitated out of water. Well, if we're a clogged artery or a clogged vessel, we can't give life or receive life, and we go numb. Apolgeo is the Greek word. We, we become numbskulls, <laughs> trapped in our own psychologos. Actually, we're kind of born that way. You remember that we talked about that too, about the fact that we're each born as unique and uh, empty earthen vessels. But very on in life, out of fear, um, uh, we try to create ourselves, we try to make ourselves, uh, we try to fill ourselves with ourselves, an earthen vessel full of, of earth. We become Porosis, or, or poros, we, we, porosis sets in. Apogeo, we become clogged and, and numbed. Earthen vessels filled with earth. And so in order to be grafted into the body, we have to be, well, even cut and emptied, emptied of ourselves and filled with life, God's, God's life. So, I must be emptied of my psychologos in order to be filled with theologos. Theo, God, logos, word, filled with the word of God, Jesus. Well, back when we were talking about those vessels up at Sanctuary Foothills one night, uh, Laura Pickler came up to me and she said, Peter, could you talk about that emptying process more, what, what that looks like? And so actually for the last few months, I've been thinking about that, chewing on that. I don't know, maybe I even said a prayer about that, but somewhere along the line, I, I started thinking about this, Becca and Kavitha. Kavitha is an Indian word that means poem. About eight years ago, Becca, a young woman from our church, journeyed to the Hyderabad slums in India to work with Operation Mobilization, to work with the Dalit, or as they're more commonly known, the untouchables. And she wrote me this letter describing an incident in which she was emptied. She describes walking through the slums in Hyderabad in shock over the despair and the suffering, and, and then Becca writes this. Turning onto the street, we could see a crowd had formed. As we approached, the crowd separated. There on the ground lay a four-year-old child. Flies swarmed her body so that even bending over her, I could barely uh, see her clearly. The only movements I notice are her pupils looking deep into my face. Too weak to lift her head, she can barely open her eyes because of the swelling. A tear runs down her face. In slow motion, I gingerly place my hands under her shoulders, under her legs, and slide my body beneath her. She has been severely beaten. Her nose is flattened, one eye is clouded over with blood. She has razor cuts across her cheeks. Her lips are split open and pus oozes from her mouth and both ears. 
the left ear almost totally deformed from these cuts. She writes, I, I, I sat there on the ground with her in my lap. People thicker than the flies pressed in on us as we clung to each other. Slowly we heard her story from the neighbors. Her mother beat her and does so often. She is locked in a room, sometimes days at a time, without food or water, her neck tied to a ceiling fan with a rope so that if she sits or falls asleep, she's choked awake. When her mother comes home, she's often drunk, and that's when the horror begins. Her bottom is disfigured with burns, her nose disfigured just last week after her mother stuffed scissors up her nose and cut the cartilage. Cigarette burns covered the back of her neck, legs, her arms. The neighbors finally called the police today because the child was screaming so much. The mother's beating had already killed her sister. The police took the mother into the station and now neighbors came to see if the child would die. Once inside the rickshaw, Kavitha leaned against me and fell asleep. She woke once and she asked if auntie was going to keep her and love her. I bathed her and bandaged her wounds. We fed her and started medicine, deworming, antibiotics, painkillers. The OM leader, the operation mobilization leader was called. And, he, and, he, and, and, the, and the leader told us that we had to bring her back to the slum. Kavitha clung to my neck, begged not to go. In her Talagu language, she said, my mommy will kill me if I go back. Please let me stay with auntie. Despair and hopelessness strangled my heart as we entered the rickshaw to bring her back to the slum. And that's what Becca did. She had no choice, no control. She could not save Kavitha. She writes this. I close my eyes and immediately I'm back standing in the street looking at Kavitha lying beaten on the stoop. Just that morning I prayed that Christ would empty me of myself and fill me with him. Please, Father, I had said, remove me and all that is within me that stands in the way of you being revealed. As I stand there, in my mind I'm alone the metal and cardboard shacks staring at me, and I scream, why, why me, why am I here? What good can come from this? See, Becca's heart was breaking. And it must have felt to her like she was going insane. And as the tears well up in my eyes, she writes, I hear a voice, his voice. You are not alone. I am here, I am in you, I am filling you. Then Becca recounts the rest of what she heard. Eight years ago, I ended a sermon with Becca's letter and, and then broke the bread and poured the cup. After the service, a woman came up to me with tears running down her cheek and she just begged me. She said, you've got to tell me the end of Kavitha's story. What's the end of her story? I think she wanted me to tell her that the suffering had stopped so that her tears would stop. I don't know if Kavitha's sufferings have stopped. But I do know that this world is full of millions upon millions of little girls just like Kavitha. And their suffering has not stopped. She, she wanted me to tell her that the suffering had stopped so her tears would stop. Like Becca said, what good can come from this? Well, that week, Aram, my associate, was just swamped with calls. He told me, Peter, everybody's been calling the church because they want emotional help with that story. They want to understand. They want to comprehend. But that's the way all suffering is, isn't it? That's kind of what makes it suffering. We can't understand. We can't understand, but we can feel. Maybe we want to understand so we don't have to feel. 
We want a little logic to protect us from a logic that we cannot comprehend, to protect us from those powerful emotions. So, so maybe, you see, emotions aren't really so much illogical, but as profoundly logical. Maybe they're a logic too complex for us to just simply comprehend with our minds. And so they affect us, and we have a hard time controlling them. And we say things like, I was overwhelmed with emotion. I was seized by emotion. You see, maybe that emotion is a logic greater than my own psychologic. People called the church because Kavitha's sufferings messed with their psychology. They couldn't stop thinking about Kavitha. They couldn't stop weeping for Kavitha. Even as I read the story this morning, you stopped thinking about yourself, didn't you, for just a moment? And maybe people called the church because they expected the church to help them stop thinking about Kavitha and once again start thinking about themselves, feel for themselves, get on with their own lives. And believe me, I, Peter Hyatt, am one of those people. But isn't it weird? Somewhere along the line, we got the strange idea that the church's job is to teach disciples how to not suffer and how to avoid tribulation. When Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to pick up a cross. And in this world, you will have tribulation. Sometimes the church seems almost antichrist. I mean, we'll teach folks how to not suffer. When Jesus came to teach us how to suffer with him. We'll teach folks we are salvation from God is salvation, Yeshua. We'll save you from the passion of the Christ. Paul writes this, we are children of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Provided we suffer pathos, provided we, we suffer passion, provided we suffer his passion with him, the passion of the theologos, the, the God word, the word of God, Jesus. Well, anyway, do you see, theologos is rather hard on our psychologos. These powerful emotions disrupt my orderly world. One friend said, I once encountered a Kavitha, and Peter, I guess I'm kind of ashamed to say it, but I had to flee, because I thought I'd die. Maybe we're supposed to die. But we run from the experience and defend our psyche with more psychologos, more of our own reason. When people suffer like Kavitha, we reason, we say, well, um, uh, she's a pagan. So she got what's coming to her. Don't touch. Or maybe, you know what? God predestined her for wrath, so, so don't touch. If she's a little older, we say stuff like this. Well, she made her choices. She, she made her own bed. You have to live with your consequences. Don't touch. Or maybe we, we try to judge. We try to name. Well, she obviously has some sort of social, dissociative personality disorder, like a, a manic, uh, depressive, um, schizophrenic, probably bipolar. I mean, we, we judge them and, and name them. So they are no longer a person, but, but a thing. As if by understanding it, we won't have to feel it or feel her. As if by knowing about it, we won't have to know her. As if by taking more knowledge of good and evil, we won't have to suffer the evil and long for the good, but, but instead we can keep our psyche intact and avoid going Insane. But maybe 
we're already insane. Ephesians 4, verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated cut off, alienated from the life of God. Paul is is writing to Gentiles, right? And, And he says, don't walk as the Gentiles. He sees these Gentiles as no longer Gentiles. Why? Because they've been grafted into this body. Don't walk as the Gentiles. Cut off from the life of God, darkened in the understanding, futile in the mind. In other words, insane. Which means we're all insane. Just nuts. We're all insane until we're grafted into the body and functioning as a body part. G.K. Chesterton writes this. The nut, the insane man, the madman, is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason, his own reason, his own logos, like a piece of the logos that was plucked from some tree, his his little piece of the logos, his own psychologos. The insane man, the nut, is all psychologos and no theologos, or perhaps dead theologos. All psychologos, no theologos, insane. You see, I'm all my own reason that I can comprehend and I can control, and I'm none of God's reason that I cannot control. God is love, and Jesus is his reason. And his passion, I cannot control. I cannot comprehend, and I cannot control. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. I am shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my room. I touch no one and no one touches me. I'm an untouchable. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. They become apogeos, writes Paul, past feeling, callous, because of the porosis, the hardness of their heart. In Greek thought, mind and heart are not totally dissociated, and yet there is a distinction. The mind is the place that we comprehend truth, where we think truth. The mind is a place we comprehend truth, and the heart is a place truth comprehends us. And so we we feel truth. Paul writes that the love of God is poured into our hearts, and he writes that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Some say that love, you know, is an emotion, and some people say that faith is an emotion. If by emotion we mean some sort of irrational impulse, then love and faith are not emotions. But if by emotion we mean a rationality or a reason that is greater than what we can control, well then faith and love are emotions. In fact, they are the emotion we call God. God is love. And Christ in us is faith, born in us. Faithful love is the reason of God. 
the word of God, the logos of theos, Jesus. Faithful love is the passion of God. And we know it or are known by it in our hearts. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus mourns the porosis of our hearts. Mark 3, the Jews are offended for they think Jesus breaks their knowledge of good and evil. He breaks their law by healing this guy of a withered hand on the Sabbath and Jesus is grieved at their porosis, their hardness of heart. They cannot think because they refuse to feel. When Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection, remember he rebukes them for their hardness of heart. And why had they hardened their hearts? Well, I would imagine that the psychological pain of seeing Jesus Christ and him crucified was just too much to bear. And so scripture says they fled and they hardened their hearts. And to protect their psychologos from the theologos, the passion of the Christ. And now the theologos, sanity incarnate, was standing in front of them, risen from the dead, and they could barely believe because of the hardness of their heart. We protect our psychologos from the theologos by hardening our hearts. We protect our psyche from the passion of the Christ by hardening our hearts. We go insane because we refuse to feel the logic of love, the logos of theos. In Paul's words, we have futile minds because our hearts are hardened. In psychiatric terms, we have alexithemia. From the Greek alexo to repel and, and thumos, emotion. Someone with alexithemia may be profoundly logical in their own mind and yet utterly insane due to their lack of feeling. They can look sociopathic like Hitler or can, they can look a, a little more endearing like Sheldon Cooper. So much for your advice on complimenting Penny. Why? What happened? She tried to rope us into going to her acting class to see a play. And don't worry, luckily I had the good sense to drown that kitten in the river. <laughs> Sheldon, that's very rude. She helped you with your show. The right thing to do is reciprocate by going to see her play. Oh, so many crazy rules. <laughs> Penny? 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 Oh, yeah, much better. What? Amy pointed out to me that since you did something nice for me, I'm obligated to do something nice for you. So, yes, I'll go to your dopey play. Hey, I don't want you to go anymore. Why not? You should go because you want to go, not because you have to. Oh, dear Lord, more rules. Where does it stop? <laughs> Can I want to go? because I have to want to go? Okay, do whatever you want. Yeah, but no, wait. Do whatever I want, or whatever I have to want. Oh, for God's sake, just come to the play. All right. I don't want to, but at least that makes sense. <laughs> I love that show. That's the Big Bang Theory. Sheldon understands everything in the universe but he cannot understand the universe in his neighbor. And he reminds me of us at church talking to God. Can I want to love because I have to want to love? I mean, it doesn't even occur to us to want to want what God wants. Only to have to want what God wants more rules. We hate the rules, but then we ask for, for more rules, more knowledge of good and evil, but not a new heart, a new wonder. We've hardened our hearts so that his logic won't interrupt our logic, alexithemia. 
Ricky Campos pointed me to this great blog post titled, The Scandal of the Evangelical Heart. And in the blog post, the author quoted uh, Richard Beck, professor and chair of psychology at Abilene Christian University. Uh, the professor writes this, when theology and doctrine become separated from emotion, we end up with something dysfunctional and even monstrous. What I'm describing here might be captured by the tag orthodox alexithemia. By orthodox, I mean the intellectual pursuit of right belief. And by alexithemia, I mean someone who is theologically speaking, emotionally and socially deaf and dumb, even theologically sociopathic. Orthodox alexithemia is produced when the intellectual facets of Christian theology become decoupled from emotion, empathy, and fellow feeling. Without Christ-shaped caring to guide the chain of calculation, we wind up with a theological equivalent of preferring to scratch a doctrinal finger over preventing the destruction of the whole world. Logically and doctrinally, such preferences can be justified, but they are monstrous. Emotion, not reason, is what has gone missing. But you see, maybe emotion is reason. And perhaps at times it's even God's reason, God's word, the passion of the Christ. Beck then writes this, in my opinion, hardcore double predestination Calvinism looks just like this, an icy, monstrous, and alexithemic theology. Well, Calvinism is my theological tradition. And, and I really love uh, much or most of Calvinism, but in some circles you're, you're required to confess that God is love and that God has created much or maybe most of humanity just so that he can torture them without end and you should just be okay with that because that is good theology. But you see, maybe it's not theologos but psychologos. Not God's reason, but human reason protecting us from God's reason. Protecting us from feeling Kavitha's pain. Protecting us from feeling her abuser's pain. Protecting us from having to touch untouchables. Uh, protecting us from the sufferings of the last and the least in these, uh, protecting us from feeling the pain of our enemies on the other side of some dividing wall, protecting us from the passion of the Christ, the word of God, good theology, Jesus. See, if it doesn't feel like Jesus, maybe it isn't Jesus. Jesus is good theologos. He is actually the Theologos in flesh. And so for a long time I felt it. This, this can't be good theology because endless torture just doesn't feel like Jesus. I felt it and, and now I see it. It's unbiblical. It's illogical. I, I think it's insane. I see it, and yet my old crowd won't even look at it. They'll, they only ignore it and exclude it. And so I've wondered, God, what is the cure for this insanity? And what is the cure for my insanity? Because you see, just by naming alexithemia, what am I doing? I think sometimes I'm trying not to feel the pain of alexithemia, and I'm making myself alexithemia, alexithemic. So God, what is the cure for our insanity? <laughs> In other words, what is the cure for our lack of love? You see, it's not just a theoretical question. It is the most profound and practical sort of question. Paul writes, they are insane due to their hardness of heart. So I think the cure for insanity must be a broken heart. But not just broken for its own sake. See, sociopaths like Hitler, alexithemics like Sheldon, I think they have rather broken hearts, but they've become callous and hardened so that they'd never have to be ever, ever broken again. So the cure for insanity is a heart broken for another. 
for another. The, the, the cure for bad theology, psychotheology, is suffering, and, and we all know this. You've, you've probably seen this, a couple that says, you know, God hates gays, he hates fags, he's gonna burn them forever, he's gonna burn them and burn them and burn them because he, he hates them. And then that couple has a son, and the son struggles with sexual identity issues, and the son contracts AIDS, and then bad theology is conquered by good theology, as their hard hearts are shattered by love. A Jew will say, God hates Samaritans, and then he'll suffer. And find that he's saved by a Samaritan. And bad theology is conquered by Jesus. Good theology. We say those sinners, they're the last and the least, and, and they're just going to burn in hell. And then on Judgment Day, the Theologos sits on his glorious throne and says, Whatever you did to the last of the least of these, you did to me. And bad theology is consumed by burning and eternal theology, the very judgment of God. Well, you see, I think the cure for insanity is a heart broken for another, a heart that is broken for love, and God is love. The cure for insanity is a heart that bleeds. You know, we think our purpose in this world is to stop the bleeding, but our purpose is to learn to bleed for another. A heart is designed, you know, to constantly bleed, or it isn't really a heart. We think our purpose in this world is to stop the weeping, but it's to learn to weep with those who weep. We think our purpose is to avoid the cross, but it's to come to the cross and to learn to die. It's to be emptied of our psychologos. That's a logos imprisoned in my own psyche, like a Jesus that I have broken and crucified and possessed as my own. Our purpose is to be emptied of our psychologos and to be filled with theologos, God's logos, Jesus risen from the dead, the very life of God flowing from one member to the next member like a river of blood flows through open vessels in a living and beating heart. Jesus said, if you lose your psyche, your life, for my sake and the kingdom, you will find it. Well, that's insane. That's just insane if you're a nut, just a nut. And yet it makes perfect sense if you're part of the iron giant, the body of Christ. It's insane if, if you're just you, but it's perfect logic if you're part of the body of Christ. It's insane if you're just an earthen vessel full of earth, but it's perfect logic if you're a blood vessel giving life and receiving life. You see, it's theologic, God's logic. It's, it's Jesus. It's the logic of love. And it is to determine and motivate everything that we do. So Paul keeps right in. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. They are callous beyond feeling and yet desperately, desperately trying to feel. I mean, isn't that a great description of addiction? Oblivious to others' feelings and, and greedy for, for, for your own feelings. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity, writes Paul. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, literally your old man, your psychologos, your self-centered self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created, created after, it's already created, new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Literally put on the new man, the new Adam, the eschatos Adam, the superman, the theologos. So if I, 
this earthen vessel, having been cleaned out, (laughs) cut and cleaned out, if I put on the new man, what am I doing? I'm doing this. You must consider yourself an integral part of the body of Christ. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Now it may occur to you to ask this obvious question. Who's my neighbor? Well, your neighbor is whoever the Lord puts in in your path. He didn't say, speak the truth to Christians, for we are members of one another, but he said, your neighbor. A Jewish lawyer asked Jesus one day, who's my neighbor? Tell me, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told him a story. Do you remember the story of the good Samaritan and this man, beaten, naked, lying half dead in his path? Kind of like Kavitha. Becca writes, just that morning, I prayed that Christ would empty me of myself and fill me with him. As I stand there in my mind, I'm alone. The metal and cardboard shack staring at me and I scream, why, why me, why am I here? What good can come from this? Her heart was breaking. She felt like she was going insane. And as tears well up in my eyes, writes Becca, I hear a voice, his voice. You are not alone. I am here, I am in you, I am filling you. I am feeling the same anger and sadness that you are feeling. As your fingers reach for her, they become my fingers. As she sits on your lap, it becomes my lap and, and not only that, but I am in Kavitha and I am her. I have been with her every day, tied to the ceiling fan. Even now, I feel pain in my hands, on my face, on my back. It is my eyes, Becca, that you are looking into. My body that you are so gently hugging. And, and even more, I am with her mother. For I have come to love the sinner the prostitute, the tax collector, and the child abuser. What, I cry, you you are here in, in the horror? You feel Kavitha's pain? You feel my pain? How can you possibly? Yes, my love reaches that far. And just as I fill you, I dream of filling her, for I feel her pain to. But I can't, I, I can't go to her, I hate her. And yet even as these words pour from my mouth, I know the truth. And he says, then let me. And he fills me. And he fills you. And he longs to fill. You see, Becca wasn't going insane. She was going sane. She was losing her psyche and gaining God's psyche. She was being emptied of herself and filled with a river, a river that flows from the throne. It's the life of God, the passion of the Christ. Well, there's just too much to explain here, but I hope you see that Jesus really has descended into the lower parts of the earth, like Paul writes, that he might fill all things all things. He was in Becca, emptying Becca of control. You know, that's really what suffering is for us, isn't it? It's losing control. He was emptying Becca of the crazy notion that she is salvation. 
and filling Becca with faith that God is salvation. In a word, Yahshua. And he was in Kavitha as an empty place of need. You know, he said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do it to me. He was uh, the blood drawn from Becca and flowing now into Kavitha. And he was even at work in Kavitha's mother. For one day, when we're finally sane, I think we will see it, that the most painful of all suffering is sin, the damning of yourself with yourself. And Jesus bears it, and Jesus longs to fill it with mercy, burning white heart mercy. Jesus was in the Hyderabad slums bearing the sins of the world. I imagine that in Becca's mind, she went to India to alleviate suffering in the name of Jesus. But maybe she went to India to share in the sufferings of Jesus, the passion of the Christ. If we're joined with him in a death like his, writes Paul, we will surely be joined with him in a resurrection like his. Becca went to India to be saved from insanity and death by the passion of the Christ. But you don't have to go to India. For God has provided you with neighbors right here, neighbors right here in whom he suffers. Understand though, because this is what we think, you're not called to stop their tears. I think that's sometimes why we harden our hearts. You're not called to stop their tears. You're called to help them cry. You're called to weep with those who weep. And before you know it, you'll be laughing with Jesus. Uh, Weep with those that God has put in your path. You know, Jesus wept with those who wept and he laughed with those who laughed. God will supply people, neighbors that that are suffering. But remember, the cure for despair, insanity, and death is not to eliminate all suffering, but to share in another's suffering, which is Christ's suffering. And that will change your psychology into theology. That will change you into a functioning part of the body of Christ. Now, I don't know exactly what happened to Kavitha, yet I know the end of her story. Kavitha is a poem, and Jesus is the end. Because he said he's the end. And this is the plan for the fullness of time to Anakephalia, to unite all things in him. And on that day, on that day, he will wipe away every tear from every eye. The mourning will turn into dancing. The sorrow will turn into joy and laughter. But you see, we'll never stop bleeding. In other words, the river of life will never stop flowing from one member into the next member, unimpaired and through clean and open vessels. We'll never stop bleeding, but it will no longer feel like death. We'll know it for what it truly is, life. Eternal life. And it begins right here. As the Theologos took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. And in the same manner, taking taking the cup, he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. Come, thou fount of every blessing, and may you come. Surrender your psychologos and receive the theologos, but not just to keep, that it might flow through you. In Jesus' name, amen. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. Let's worship him. There's only one There is only one, there is only one found worth.
that's found worthy, and you are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, like Paul said, the only way that you can do that is to be a part of him. And so this is the gospel. The body will come back together. But the river will never stop flowing. And there's a logic to that that should affect everything that you do. So let's pray. Would you just close your eyes with me for a minute? Lord, uh, would you show us what, what this means for each of us? I know that you're doing that all the time, but maybe now, Lord, you would help us to think of a neighbor. Just think of a neighbor who's suffering. Now, maybe God calls you as his agent to help stop the tears at a certain point, but I don't think that we're always called to stop the tears. In fact, I don't think that we really can stop the tears. But I know that we are called to weep the tears, to weep with those who weep. And yes, to laugh with those who laugh. And we will one day laugh forever with him. But, but you see, you can weep those tears. And if you say to yourself, oh God, I don't have the strength to weep those tears, then he says to you, let me. Let me fill you. Let me use you. Let me reveal myself through my body broken and my bloodshed. And so, Lord God, now, we pray that you would help us to love that neighbor the way you love that neighbor. In Jesus' name, we pray it. And we thank you, Lord God, that you're not a masochist. You don't suffer just for the sake of suffering. And so, Lord God, uh, uh, help us not to run out and try to suffer, because then it's not suffering. We're in control of it. But, Lord, help us to surrender to it in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.